As you may know if you've been listening to SSR for a while, I'm not a huge science fiction reader these days. But that wasn't necessarily true when I was a kid. When I was growing up, I read pretty much everything that I could get my hands on. Honestly, Grown Up Allie could probably take a page out of School Aged Allie's book when it comes to being open-minded with the TBR. As a young bookworm, I read voraciously from basically every genre, including science fiction. I'm not really sure how Orson Scott Card's 1985 novel Ender's Game didn't hit my radar until adulthood, but it didn't. The winner of the prestigious Nebula and Hugo Awards, FYI, these are basically the biggest prizes you can get as a science fiction author. Ender's Game is the story of a six-year-old boy named Ender living sometime in the Earth's future. Under the direction of the International Fleet, humans are preparing to go to war for the third time with an alien species known as the Buggers, and in order to set themselves up for success, they've decided to train gifted children as soldiers. Ender is one such gifted child, and he's taken to battle school, where he spends years being put through a series of increasingly difficult games and war simulations to gauge his readiness to face a bugger invasion. He also spends those years being isolated and manipulated by the adults who are meant to protect him. High-ranking military officials have identified Ender as an especially high-potential student, and they believe that the best way to mold that potential is to turn all of his classmates against him. It's pretty messed up. In this episode, we discuss who the real antagonists of the book are, talk about the wild twist that comes at the end, and consider what Ender's Game has to say about good, evil, and the moral responsibilities of war. We also spend quite a bit of time at the top of the episode addressing Orson Scott Card's incredibly problematic politics, which have come to the surface in the years since his beloved book was published. This was a tough conversation for our guest to have, since Card's work has been influential in her own writing, and I really appreciate that she stepped up to take a good hard look at one of her lifelong favorites with me. I know how complicated that can be. Katie Rose Poole is a writer living in Berkeley, California. She grew up in Los Angeles, where her screenwriter father taught her about three-act structure, characterization, and inciting incidents, all before she could tie her shoes. Katie studied history and English at UC Berkeley. She enjoys breakfast sandwiches, fancy cocktails, rooting for the Golden State Warriors, and books that set her on fire. Katie's debut novel, There Will Come a Darkness, is out on September 3rd from Holt Books for Young Readers. Follow Katie on Twitter at Katie Poole and Instagram at Katie Rose Poole. That's Katie with a Y, friends. You can also learn more about Katie on her website at katierosepool.com and about her forthcoming book at therewillcomeadarkness.com. As always, I encourage you to pay a visit to ssrpodcast.com as well. Seriously, there are so many fun things happening over there right now. You can check out the newish SSR blog, make sure you're caught up on every episode of the podcast, and shop SSR merch, which, as of just last week, now includes t-shirts. Click support on the website to learn more about Patreon, a platform that allows you to show your love for the pod by becoming a patron. For just a few dollars a month, you'll get access to very cool exclusive rewards, not to mention the satisfaction that comes with playing an active role in keeping one of your favorite shows going strong. You can also show your support for the podcast by leaving five-star ratings and reviews on iTunes, and by getting in on the social media conversation. Follow us on Twitter and Instagram at SSRPod, and find us on Facebook by searching The SSR Podcast. Few things make me happier than seeing you tagging the episodes you're listening to on your fave social platform, so please don't be shy. I want to say a big thank you to everyone who shares SSR on Instagram, leaves ratings and reviews on iTunes, and supports the show with their dollar on Patreon. You are all awesome. I also want to say a big thank you to my friends at Libra FM who continue to partner with me. I love sharing their mission and, of course, a promo code with you. Libra FM lets you purchase audiobooks directly from your favorite local bookstore. Choose from more than 100,000 audiobooks, including New York Times bestsellers and recommendations from booksellers around the country. With Libra FM, you'll get the same audiobooks at the same price as the largest audiobook company out there. You know who I'm talking about. 
but you'll be part of a much different story, one that supports community. SSR listeners can get a three-month audiobook membership for the price of just one month. Go to Libro.fm, that's L-I-B-R-O dot F-M, and enter code SSRPOD when prompted. When I shop for audiobooks on Libro.fm, I support my local Brooklyn indie books are magic, but you can choose any story you want. Are you ready to get into Ender's Game? Let's go to the show. Welcome to the SSR Podcast. You may recognize SSR as an elementary school era abbreviation for silent sustained reading, but if you don't, that's okay. What it stands for here is Shit She Read. Each week, we'll crack the binding on an old school read written for kids or teens and talk about it from a kind of grown-up perspective. We'll obsess over heartthrobs, relive the frustrations of middle school, and say an occasional WTF to a beloved author. If we haven't met yet, I'm your host, Ali Hofkosik, freelance writer, lifelong bookworm, and lover of anything covered in rainbow sprinkles. So find your favorite reading spot and a glass of wine. We're about to revisit some literary throwbacks right here on the SSR Podcast. Hi, Katie. Welcome to SSR. Hi. Thanks, Allie. I'm so excited to be here. I'm thrilled to have you. So listeners, I went to a panel at BookCon this year, and I heard Katie speak on it. And I think like within 48 hours, I had emailed her, and I was like, please, I really need to have you on the podcast. <laughs> Which I was so excited to get that email. I was like, yes, podcast. Let's do it. This will be the first podcast I'm ever on. So, you know, beginner whatever here. <laughs> I'm very confident in your abilities and we've had a little bit of chatter like before recording. So hopefully you're feeling like calm, cool, collected, ready to go. We're going to have fun. All right. We're talking about Ender's Game and I've had this on my list for a while. Um, as you and our listeners know, I spent a few years working in publishing and I'd heard this book title tossed around. Um, one of my jobs when I worked in publishing was to maintain a list of all of the movie adaptations that were coming out from books across publishing houses. So I remember in 2013, the Ender's Game movie came out and it was really the first time that I'd heard about this book. I don't know why it wasn't on my radar as a kid. And I realized that it was kind of a big deal, um, particularly in the science fiction world. And I was like, I feel like an idiot for having never even heard of it. And so I added it to my SSR list and I've been waiting for the right moment to talk about it. And I offered it to you as one of the choices. And I'd love to hear more about why you chose to go with this one. Yeah. So as soon as you sent me your choices, there was one book in particular I wanted to do, but I realized you had done an episode on it very recently. And that's Ella Enchanted, which is one of my absolute favorite children's books. And I read it as a kid. I read it recently. Like it's amazing. But I saw this book on the list, Ender's Game. And honestly, I was like, oh my God, it has to be that one. Because this book for me was like a very formative read when I was a kid. Don't remember exactly how old I was when I first read it, but I've definitely read it like multiple times, like a five or six times. And this book for me was like really important to actually me as a writer. And reading this book as a kid, I started to realize sort of what you can do with characters. And to me, that's like the core of this book is the characters. So as soon as I saw on the list, I was like, we got to do this. I have so many thoughts about it. And then the other side of that is like, as much as I loved this book as a kid, um, and as much as it was super formative to me, I also came to realize like the author is kind of a controversial figure. He's like very homophobic. He sort of has all of this stuff out on the internet that you can read where it's like, oh, this guy's like thoughts about the world and everything is like very different from how I think about the world. And so that was like something that I've actually struggled with a lot, like for a lot long time in my life. And this is a great example of it, of like, here's this author that like, I really don't agree with him and his views. I think he's a bigot, but I love his book. And how can that be true? If you love a book that's like, the ideas in the book 
and it has to be part of like how what his actual ideas and opinions are too so obviously this is like not specific to Orson Scott Card but I think he's a really like big example of it and so that's something sort of that I'm always thinking about when I'm reading this book I should also say too like there's sequels to this book and I've read them all like I this is like very much like a favorite book favorite series of mine so if I like start to veer into like what happens to these characters later in the series like you can cut me off it's totally fine I'm not going to cut you off because I'm curious this was definitely like the first time that I read this book people who follow me on Instagram know that admittedly I was a little bit like nervous about getting into it just because (laughs) as an adult I'm not really a science fiction reader and so even the cover was like very intimidating to me mm-hmm. um and I was like oh this feels like such a commitment I'm sure it's gonna be good but am I gonna get it because sometimes with books like this I just find myself kind of getting lost in the story and it's so important to me when I prepare for these conversations on the podcast that like I'm really on top of it so I always get a little bit nervous that I'm not gonna quite follow um so feel free to like share as much as you know about this universe <laughs> because spoiler alert I actually really liked the content of the book itself and so I'm kind of dying to know what happens to all of these characters. That being said, I'm really glad that you mentioned the Orson Scott card controversy. I wanted to make sure we covered it at the top of the episode because I do think it's important that we do our best to discuss the book itself separately. Mm -hmm. To your point, I think we we have to be cognizant of the fact that an author's ideas obviously permeate a book and it's impossible to totally separate them. And I think it would be disrespectful to the communities and people that are on the other end of Orson Scott Card's hateful comments to pretend that we could separate the two. That feels icky to me. But we've also had a lot of conversations on the podcast about the sticky nature of cancel culture and what happens when we just kind of decide that we are going to completely give up on a piece of content or a piece of pop culture just because we can't align ourselves with where it comes from. So I think we have to do our best. And again, I say this with all due respect to the communities that have been fully bullied by this man. And and I 100% don't agree with his views. Um, But I think as much as possible, we need to try to focus on the book as a separate conversation because it's been very successful. It's been well-reviewed. It's won a lot of awards. And so it kind of deserves analysis of its own. That being said, I do want to sort of expand on what you mentioned with regards to Orson Scott Card. And I'll include all of these resources in the show notes for this episode. But he does have this long history of speaking out very vocally against homosexuality in particular. Um, he's a devout Mormon, not to say that all devout Mormons have this mindset, but that is sort of all over the pieces that I found about his background. He has written many, many op-eds. He's spoken out against marriage equality and he's just kind of like stood for everything that I don't believe in. And I think it's relevant to talk about this because I found a lot of interesting think pieces about how the book Ender's Game as a work is actually so empathetic and inclusive. It so is. it's worth talking about just because what this book stands for is like in such opposition to the kind of person that Orson Scott Card has kind of turned out to be over the last decade or so. So I think that like we kind of have to talk about it because it's confusing. It's very confusing. And yeah, I mean, I... I think that this is something that we have to grapple with a lot in our lives. And like I said, like Orson Scott Card is not unique in this manner in the idea that 
there is uh, media and content that we love and the people who create them are often like not good people. And this is something I think that has come up a lot in the last couple of years, particularly and having to grapple with like, how do I feel about this now that I know the person behind it and trying to navigate that and still enjoy the media that we love. No one's telling you not to enjoy the things that you want to enjoy, but to take that and, you know, the person who created it together and sort of try and figure out how to enjoy something and also critique it. I found this amazing essay that I'm going to post in the show notes for this episode. I'm going to encourage everybody to read it, including you, Katie, because I think you're really going to enjoy it. It is called Stranger in a Strange Land, and I found it on Grantland. And it's it, I don't have the name of the writer of this essay on hand, but it's written by a Muslim man who grew up as a science fiction lover who loved the Foundation's trilogy and then found his way to Ender's Game. As some of you may know, the Foundation's trilogy was a huge inspiration to Orson Scott Card in writing Ender's Game. He writes a lot about that in the intro to this edition that I read. And this essay talks about how for many, many years, the author like thought that he could relate to Orson Scott Card because they both came from these religious backgrounds that were somewhat like shrouded in stereotypes and inaccuracies in America. Um, he also just loved his writing and just like really idolized him. He had actually sent him a thank you note at one point and got a response back and was so touched by the whole thing. But then after 9-11, Orson Scott Card started writing some really terrible stories in which he was making horrible comparisons about Middle Eastern people to dogs and like other horrible things. And at a certain level, this man was like, I need to speak out. I had this sort of positive exchange with Orson Scott Card years ago, but I can't let this slide. Like he's he's speaking yeah. out against everything that I believe in. He was making terrible accusations about like Muslims condoning the indiscriminate murder of their enemies. Like it's all so gross. I hate even saying it, but just the context is really important. Yeah. And they ended up having this additional email exchange that became a set of columns that were published online where like Orson Scott Card was kind of trying to reckon with what this kid that had looked up to him so much when he was growing up was like accusing him of as an adult. And it's really about like the disillusionment of this man Mm -hmm. and, and his experience with the books and his experience with the author. And I wanted to share an excerpt from that essay because I just think it's really well done. Honestly, I could read the whole thing and feel like all of it was worthwhile to share. But one line from it was, or one paragraph from it was, tolerance isn't an easy mountain to climb, but the view gets better the higher you go. While I was feeling my way up the path, Card was rolling downhill and picking up steam. And as much as I'd like to find a justification for his behavior, as much as I'd like to extend him the courtesy of empathy that his books always preached, that rope is fraying at the edges. Card's homophobia has obscured the larger story about him, which is that his bigotry is hardly limited to homophobia. And this essay was written in 2013 as the movie was kind of gearing up and this controversy really heated up around that time because now we have the internet and all of this stuff about Orson Scott Card is like out there and so all of these groups were boycotting the movie and the essay closes with the line, no, the main reason boycotting Ender's Game is counterproductive is that the theme of the story itself is the best repudiation of everything for which Card has come to stand. Yeah, that, wow, that's amazing. I didn't really know anything about that And I think that's like an interesting, obviously terrible thing, but there is a character in Ender's Game who is Muslim, or at least his family is, was It's sort of an interesting situation in the book itself, but he's very much like a good character. He's like Ender's best friend at battle school and he's like shown in this very positive light. So that's like very strange to me, the way that his writing and his 
opinions seem to really contradict one another. Yeah, and this author had said this was like the first time he had ever read about a Muslim character that felt like real to him and wasn't based on stereotypes and quite frankly, like gross assumptions about a religion. Um, And so I think that this is all really interesting. Like I said, I want to be able to move on and really focus on the book. Of course, yeah. Certainly, like this is worth talking about. It's important to note that these books don't come from a vacuum. They come from people, and we often don't agree with those people. And when um, our disagreements are sort of like so core to our belief system, it's definitely worth talking about before yeah. we get into the work itself, I I happen to think. I think so, too. And I'm glad that we had this discussion, too, because this is something that I'm thinking about constantly when I'm reading the book, so it's impossible to sort of completely separate the two. So other than that, when you're getting back into the book, I'd love to know yes. what your thoughts were, like, as you were revisiting it for, what, the sixth, seventh time? Like, what was that experience <laughs> like um, at this point in your life? I mean, honestly, it was a feeling of, like, just familiarity and, like, sort of joy at revisiting these characters in this world. Obviously, it's it's not a very happy story in the end, but I think these characters, because I've read this book so many times and I've read the sequels, like I've come to know them so deeply, that sort of coming back to them was like wonderful. There were some things, and I was sort of anticipating as I was reading that I was like, now that I'm coming to this as an adult, I think the last time I read it, I was probably a teenager, so not like a little kid. But, you know, coming to the book as an adult now with my sort of adult understanding of the world, that there were things that were going, I was going to see that I had not really registered as a kid. And that was certainly true. Um, But I think the core of the story still was very much the same and sort of touched me in the same way that it did all those times I've read it years and years ago. I'm hardly the first person to make this comparison. And I know this because I saw this comparison (laughs) all over all of the stories that I was reading before you and I started talking today. And I have a feeling you know what I'm going to say. But as soon as I started reading this book, I was like, shades of Harry Potter. And that's Mm -hmm. kind of what got me into it. Because as I said, I had some like weird trepidation about starting this book that seems like so heavy science fiction to me and non-science fiction reader but I'm a huge 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 Harry Potter fan and so right I mean honestly like (laughs) hot take like Harry Potter's great everyone like you heard it here first it it was sort of like my foothold into the story where I was like okay I get this kid at school kid at school he's bullied he has a family member who's horrible to him he's special he's special like he is sort of isolated and lonely and sad but at the same time he's like inherently unique and sort of like vital to the larger world in the same way that Harry is like vital to the magical world Ender is like vital to civilization in this future universe that Orson Scott Card has concocted for us yeah so I Um, thought that was interesting and that was sort of like my reference point for it Totally. I think I actually read this book before I read Harry Potter, um, although I can't confirm that. (laughs) But um, one thing that I wanted to touch on that you brought up is Ender's relationship with his family and specifically his siblings. His parents are not really in the book as much, but his relationship with Valentine, his sister, or Valentine, I'm not actually sure, and Peter, his brother, is really interesting to me. And I in particular love books about sibling relationships and that's something that's in my writing a lot too and in fact the relationship between Ender and his brother Peter is something that inspired a relationship between brothers in my book that I can actually like really directly draw a line from Ender and Peter and this like kind of horrible abusive relationship that they have to these characters in my own book that I was like 
realizing more and more as I was reading it, I was like, oh, I really took a lot of inspiration from this. Hmm. That's so interesting that it's like so clear to you. Listeners, Katie's first book is coming out in just a few weeks as you're listening to this. So (laughs) when you go out and buy it, because I know you're going to, and after you've read Ender's Game, you can look for that parallel. I think that's really cool that you were able to trace that back now, like with this finished book in your hands. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I knew it as I was writing it, but I think coming back to Ender's Game, I realized it was like more so than I thought um, that it was really like a huge inspiration for that relationship. The family dynamics were really interesting because we have this brother, Peter, who's quite frankly an asshole to Ender. I'm just going to... He's pretty horrible. He's awful. Um, He's evil. And it's weird because everybody acknowledges it. Like it's sort of common knowledge within the family. Like not only that Peter's difficult, but that like he could potentially be a murderer. Right. Like we're talking about it like it's normal. But Val, his sister is like, oh yeah, like, you know, you know him. He could probably kill either of us. And like, he would be fine with that. And that was, that was unique. Never quite seen a sibling, like bullying relationship taken to that point before. And then we have Val who is like just extraordinary in her own way. Like she's such a good person. Yeah. And you pick up on that kind of before she even does anything. Like she just mediates between Ender's opinion of her. Yeah. He holds her in such high esteem. She's in this like weird position of, of being the middle child, which I think is hard anyway, and mediating Mm -hmm. between these two brothers which is clearly, mm-hmm. like, a very toxic situation. And then we have Ender, and sort of, like, an interesting world-building piece of all of this is that Ender wasn't really supposed to be born. On Earth, in this future, humans are only allowed to have two children, but the government saw how promising Peter and Valentine were, and so they gave their parents permission to have a third kid. And so the siblings refer to Ender as third. The whole reason he calls himself Ender or has been called that in his family is because he's like the end of the family. And the parents that we don't get much about them, like what we know about them is kind of interesting. Like our sense is that they got super religious after they met, but they, they aren't really in a society or culture where religion is encouraged or even really like allowed Um, and so they had to put that aside but they like secretly baptized their children there's some weird and cool stuff going on here yeah for sure I think the family relationship really like draws you into the book in the very beginning and I think also I want to touch back on sort of the character of Val Mm. and how she through Ender's eyes we, we come to know her as this very good person and I think ultimately she is but there is that sort of tension in the book where she herself when we're in her perspective like about midway through the book, she is like, I'm actually like not a good person. Like I'm more like Peter. Mm-hmm. And in Ender's eyes, it's like very much a dichotomy between Val and Peter. And he's always like somewhere in between. That's like mentioned very early in the book that he is like sort of them put together. But then when we get there, like Val's perspective, we see like that's not necessarily as black and white as Ender believes. Like Val herself is like very cunning very also ambitious and so she's not actually as different from Peter as Ender believes and I think this is something that comes up in the book a lot especially with like Ender's view of himself and his sort of understanding of his actions why he does the things that he does he's like always trying not to be Peter and I think that's something we see with both of those siblings yeah it's sort of an illustration of like how your relationship with your sibling sticks with you no matter Mm -hmm. how long it's been or how far away you go I mean Ender hasn't seen his family in years he's yeah in the earth's orbit he has no contact with them and the fact that like he's still defining himself 
relative. Yeah, it's, yeah. Cra- it's really interesting and kind of like yeah. a cool study of like how family works. Yeah, I think that's why I find siblings so interesting. I mean, I obviously have siblings myself, so it's something I can relate to. Not necessarily like in the specific relationships. <laughs> so you're saying I hope not. <laughs> Thankfully, both of my siblings are wonderful people. But yeah, just that that these people are really the first people that you know as peers and that impacts you so much and it's sort of like beyond the parent figure there are these people who can really like shape you as a person the other peer that we meet very early in the book who peter has sort of like prepared ender to deal with is a boy at school named stilson and when we meet ender he's just had what they call his monitor removed he's six years old and sort of like The premise of all of this is that humans have had to battle an alien species that they call the buggers twice. There have been two invasions. They narrowly Mm -hmm. won them. Um, And so now they're kind of like waiting for the third one to happen and they're trying to arm themselves appropriately. And the government seems to be monitoring every child that's born to see if they are up to snuff to be trained to like be at the front lines of whatever's going to happen with this invasion with the buggers. So Ender has just had his monitor removed. It seems as though like they're going to not take him at first. He hasn't quite made the grade and it's kind of a contest in the house. Like Peter and Valentine had their monitors and it's like who had theirs on the longest? Like who came first? And Ender goes to school and this older boy named Stilson is giving him a hard time and he stands up for himself and like hits him pretty hard like it's a pretty violent it's the first of many like very violent scenarios in this book mm-hmm. um for the record that's really like the major criticism that this book seems to have gotten from reviewers and from educators um is the violence piece of it but ender is not aware of the fact that he actually kills stilson in this Until encounter much later in the book much Don't later even find in the that book. Out. yeah but like just to give you a sense of like how bad it was like it was really bad. He killed this kid. And the reason he ends up being able to go to battle school is because of the way that he explains, like, why he actually went nuts on this kid. He explained, like, I wanted to kind of head him off at the past. Like, I was trying to do this now so that we could avoid future confrontations. And then Colonel Graf, who is a representative of the international fleet, the IF, is sort of like, hmm okay, like maybe you are a good fit. And then he goes to battle school. Yeah, and I think it's also at that moment that not only does he decide that Ender is like ready to go to battle school, but he sort of identifies like he's the one that we're going to train all the way through to become a commander of this fleet for this next war with the buggers. There are these pieces that I found really interesting reading them now of sort of the adults talking about Ender at the beginning of most chapters where Mm -hmm. we get sort of this exchange between Graf and another sort of uh, representative of the IF and what sort of, it sort of explains, gives you more insight into why the things that are happening to Ender at this battle school are happening. Yeah, at first I I couldn't quite figure out what was going on, but it's formatted such that at the beginning of every chapter, as Katie mentioned, it's actually in a different font. So you get sort of this like sans serif font if we want to get fancy. Um, (laughs) And that's the adults talking, and then you get into the serif section, and that's um, more kid-focused. Like the narrative. Right, the narrative. That's more like what's happening with Ender. It's interesting, because when I was reading the book, and I'd love to know what you think about this, I perceived Ender as this, like, very complex, complicated, like, intellectual, sort of tortured kid, but I didn't necessarily immediately identify him as like, I didn't identify him as inherently violent. And I I felt so much that he was just kind of like a victim of a lot of circumstances that had made them the way that he was. And I think that's a testament to the quality of the narrative because you are in his head so much that like you can't help but root for him. But interestingly, Mm -hmm. I was reading um, 
some commentary about the production of the movie and like all of the times that Orson Scott Card actually turned down signing the rights to a movie deal. Um, And he said that the reason that he wasn't ready to give permission to have Ender's Game be made into a movie was because he felt it was quote-unquote unfilmable. Um, He said that because so much of the story happens in Ender's head, he was worried that almost any movie adaptation would sort of just like portray Ender as this like mean, violent, cold kid. And I was reading this after I'd finished the book and I was just thinking like, I guess I didn't read him that way. And I wonder if if I read it again, like getting that context from the author, if if I would see that. But I didn't see him that way. I saw him as this, like, very scared, as I said, like, tortured, right, sort of introverted kid. But I, I did not see him that way on my first read. Yeah, well, I think the key to Ender is that he doesn't want to be victimized. And this is something that he has really learned through his relationship with his brother Peter. In that, from then on, whenever he faces sort of a bully or someone who wants to cause him harm, he wants to win not only that battle, but all future battles. He does not want to become a victim. He doesn't want that situation that he was in with his brother to continue. Mm-hmm. And so every time he—and this happens a second time in the book— where he gets in a fight with a kid and ultimately kills him because he's so like committed to not continuing to not be a victim um, and will do anything to stop that from happening. There, he's not sort of naturally going to hurt people. It's when he himself is threatened. He has like a survival instinct that's extremely yeah. intense. And uh, because yeah. he's so strong in all of these different kinds of ways, when that instinct turns on, it's like game over for everybody else. Um, But I thought that was an interesting perspective from Orson Scott Card and sort of like maybe a pat on his back for like telling the story through Ender's eyes so well because that's just not how I would have characterized him as a reader. And maybe it's because I'm just like conditioned at this point to like be sympathetic toward the, the protagonist. Like I couldn't help but like him. But on reflection, I was like, maybe he was, like, kind of dark and scary, even though he was six years old when we meet him. Yeah, and I think there's also that level of, like, he does—he has a couple friends that he makes, but he does ultimately hold himself apart from a lot of the kids. Um, I think it's also interesting, too, that he is six, and throughout the book, he's pretty much between the ages of six and ten. And I'm like, that's very young for the types of things that are happening and the level of intelligence that he has. And I think that was the point. But still reading it, I'm sort of like— he could have been, like, 10, and it still would have made sense. Um, but I think, like, he's really exaggerated, like, the level to which these children are turned into, like, child soldiers, essentially. I don't know which edition you were reading, but... So mine had a really interesting introduction by the author. I think this was the... Um, the revised edition that he came out with in 1991. Oh, he had I'm gone reading through. A, I think an earlier one. Oh, that's cool. So this is the 1991, <laughs> the author's definitive edition, according to the cover. Um, I oh, think boy. he went through and sort of made some changes to like the political stuff because. Oh, interesting. Yeah, because the book originally came out in 1985, and then this yeah. version came out in 1991, and so um, he wanted to address the changes with the USSR, um, which I guess are not reflected in the original version. He wanted to change some of the language there to address the the shifting politics of the real world, so that's kind of a fun fact. But this edition has an introduction from him, and he talks a lot about his inspiration, again, um, a lot about the Foundations trilogy, which I have not read, Um, and he talks about one of the major pieces of criticism that he gets when he's talking to people about the book, which is that, like, there's no way that, like, even gifted children could talk the way that the kids talk in this book. And, like, 
true. I'm just going to like <laughs> randomly open my book to a page and share some of the dialogue because like these kids are six, seven, eight, nine years old and they talk like they're middle aged. It's like, listen, Ender, commanders have just as much authority as you let them have. The more you obey them, the more power they have over you. I mean, that's probably not the best example, but again, like this is just a random page of the book. And Orson Scott Card's response was like, well, they're not supposed to be normal gifted kids. Like as a reminder, this is a science fiction book. This story exists in a completely different time a completely different place so I wasn't trying to make them like even the gifted and talented kids at your like standard elementary school in the suburbs (laughs) but I do think like to your point maybe they could have been between the ages of 10 and 14 and I would have bought it a little bit more and it would have been easier to sort of like buy into Ender's like emotional development throughout the book yeah because it's like how can he process this he's too young that's the thing is like you can be extremely intelligent at a young age in a science fiction book but I will not really believe that you have had enough time to like emotionally develop the way that like it's clear that Ender has interestingly and I because you love the characters in this book I'm anxious to hear what you think about this I read some commentary online from people who feel as though the character development is really lacking in this book and that it's sort of akin to watching somebody play a video game and not actually become like a different person. I don't know how I feel Um, about that. What do you think? I think he does a really amazing job at developing Ender. Mm -hmm. Um, And I think that's pretty clear throughout the book that every time there's like a new situation we really see how Ender is sort of you know changing to like adapting essentially yeah. he's adapting to all of these things that they're throwing at him so I think that Ender is a well-developed character I think I would agree that none of the other characters are that developed in the book I think Peter's very interesting and I think he does kind of show some complexity he's not just this like psychopath like he also at the end of the book you know becomes like this sort of hero and like savior of the people of Earth in a similar way that Ender does but he does it in a completely different way. I will say, I think that for me, because I've read the sequel series, and there's also a series that is from the perspective of Bean, Ender's friend, who he makes, who's like his subordinate, essentially, in, in the army that he eventually is like the leader of, like fake army. So there's a whole series of books from Bean's perspective, Interesting. which reading this book, I realized that he did not know Bean's backstory in this book, because there are certain comments that he makes where I'm like, that is not consistent with like the other books that are from his perspective which was interesting um, for me to see as a writer because I'm like, yeah, you had not thought about this yet. You should have Um, rounded out the whole world before you started, like, a full (laughs) universe of books. No, all the characters' backstories. So (laughs) Bean and Petra are these very important characters in this other series. And so I think the fact that I've read that series and I know their perspectives really well, I'm sort of, like, projecting that onto the characters in this book, which, like, ultimately aren't that well-developed. Like, Petra is, like... She's, like, the only girl that we meet at battle school, and, like, she sort of breaks down at the end of the book, and that's essentially all we know about her. And the other sort of battle school kids that Ender meets, like, I think the one that I would say is probably the most well-developed is his friend Ali, who we talked about earlier, who is the Muslim kid that he becomes friends with. And again, like, we see some of him. We mainly see his sort of compassion and tenderness towards Ender and not a whole lot else. But again, that's a character that I know well from other books. So I'm sort of projecting all of that onto the characters in this book, which I think I would agree. Like a lot of the book is just focused on Ender and it's about his thoughts and his actions and all of the other characters are sort of set dressing more or less. 
we needed more from the girls for sure. And knowing what I know now about Orson Scott Card, I can't help but think that um, yeah. there might be something more going on there under the surface. Yeah, there aren't girls. There's a line that I completely missed the first five times I read this. It's the very beginning of the book. I don't think I marked it. But essentially, Colonel Graff is talking to Ender for the first time, and he's explaining battle school and how they recruit. And he's like, oh, there aren't many girls because evolution is working against them. And yep. then we completely move on. Like, that's never investigated. And I I read that line, and I seriously put down the book for, like, two days, and I was like, I can't keep reading this. Like, if I encountered a line like that now in a book that I had never read before, I would put the book down. Like, I would not keep reading, because, like, that's a point of view that I'm just, like, it's so provably wrong. <laughs> and it's, like... It's just gross. It's completely sexist and ridiculous. Like, I'm like, are you serious? Yeah, it's just bad. I wrote that line down, too. Uh, we have, we just, there are just a, there's a lack of female representation in this book. Um, we have Valentine, who I really like as a character, but, like, the more I think about her, pretty much all of her plot points in this book are based on a male character. Like, we were talking about how she spends all of her time kind of defining herself based on one of her two brothers. All of the significant stuff that she takes on over the course of the book is sort of only because Peter asks her to. She's also in some ways like kind of a damsel in distress figure and that Ender being like six, seven, eight years old doesn't have a love interest. And so I think that where in she other fills that role. Right. Yeah. In other books, a character who is in Ender's position of like trying to save the world might think back to home and might think back to his significant other um, and might be like, that's who I'm trying to save in this book. Like, that's kind of Valentine's role because he's a yeah. child. Um, and so she's playing the role of a damsel in distress a little bit there. And then we have Petra, mm-hmm. who, as you mentioned, at first seemed super cool. And I think we meet her pretty shortly after that disgusting centuries of evolution are working against them line and so when she showed up I was like oh this is so cool I can't wait to learn more about her she's awesome at first because she actually is one of the first people to really like help Ender and to like start to show him Mm -hmm. the ropes nobody else will really like engage with him or help him learn how to do all of this stuff and she does but at the end she falls apart and so again we have like we we just we can't have a girl character who's like kick ass from start to finish or or sort of strong in her own right everybody is either like on the road to self-destruction waiting to be saved or only existing in relation to the boys and men around them yeah I didn't necessarily take issue by itself the fact that Petra is the one to fall apart um, when they sort of are fighting the war itself which we don't know at the time in the book spoiler <laughs> we <laughs> but do a lot she's of the one to fall apart okay. I don't I don't take issue with that specifically because I don't think that in order to be like a strong character that you know female characters can't have flaws but I think when you take that with the rest of the book and the fact that she's not really developed beyond that you don't really understand sort of the circumstances in which she falls apart we don't know anything about her sort of emotional life I think that's when it starts to kind of bother me that I'm like this was the character that you chose to do this to you don't really give us enough about her to sort of understand why this happened or how she feels about it or anything else about her and so at that point I'm kind of like Mm, little little side eye <laughs> a little dicey sir um one more thing to add to the dicey 
category for this guy. But you said that Petra plays a bigger role in the subsequent books in the series. So there's like a different book that takes place at Battle School from Bean's perspective. And then that series continues on and we find out all of these things that happen on Earth after Ender leaves. Okay. Um, and so all of his Battle School friends are essentially like caught up in all of the political machinations of the world. And all of the countries, as is predicted in this book, are trying to take control of all of these like famous war hero children. And so Petra and Bean are sort of at the center of that. Petra, I think her home country is Armenia. And Bean, he's sort of from the Netherlands, is like very complicated. But essentially, they're like caught up in all this political stuff. And then we see throughout that series, like they become adults, like they have children, like it's like a whole saga. Um, So we find out a lot more about her and about Bean, which I enjoyed because I like them both as characters. But again, in this book, like they're just not that developed. I'm glad to hear she at least gets her moment. I would have loved to see like a grown woman working as part of the international fleet and I think that's I feel like that's the kind of thing we would get in science fiction today although 1985 like doesn't seem like it's before the time when that would have happened yeah (laughs) I don't know I mean we Uh, we we had Star Wars like you know I I guess I feel it's not that long ago I do feel like Orson Scott Card again was behind the times I would have loved to picture this world with a couple of really cool women at the helm of the IF And I think, too, especially in a book that takes place in the future, there's all this sort of technological and political evolution that's happened, and we see no social evolution. We see no changes in gender roles. We see no changes in, like, the way in which the world operates, like, on a social level. And that, to me, is a bit unbelievable because we've seen even in the past 10 years how much those things can change that's a great point really great point so in terms of plot I would say the next like 100 or so pages after we establish Ender's Life at Battle School for me this could have been shortened this was a lot of detail about him moving around to all these different armies essentially what happens is like as a student at Battle School you're placed into a different army to train with the other soldiers um, and you can be moved around you can be traded um, your goal is to become a toon leader which I assume is short for a platoon leader um, yes. <laughs> so that you can then become a commander of one of these armies and they fight each other in like a zero gravity battle room which is meant to simulate what it would actually be like should these students yeah. actually go off and become like real live soldiers in a bugger war. The the main thing I think that's important about all of this, which I would say consumes like a year or two in real time, like there's a passage of time here, is that the adults in particular um, are constantly like doing everything that they can to isolate Ender and that's sort of their strategy. Like at the beginning when he first gets there, they're physically putting him in spots and in situations where like he's not going to have access to other students they're putting him in an army with all kids that are way older than he is that everybody's going to make fun of him like their main strategy is to sort of like make him feel lonely so that he can Mm -hmm. like focus entirely on becoming the strongest soldier he can be but like outside of that I mean he makes some friends he develops a few relationships but really like my takeaway from this whole section of the book is that Ender's becoming like a really creative problem solver he's learning about the value of teamwork he's learning that sometimes it's smart to go around the rules his like big thing is that he decides that when his superiors in the armies that he's in aren't giving him access to the training that he needs like he's going to establish these sort of like covert training groups he's going to let younger kids older kids like all train together and he becomes the leader of that kind of group even though it's not technically like approved by the school (laughs) yeah he's doing all this off the books training 
all this off the books training again like I'm seeing some strains of Harry Potter here where mm-hmm. I know there are moments the DA. yeah the yep. DA so I can't help it I'm just seeing Harry everywhere um <laughs> happy belated birthday Harry yesterday oh, yeah, was his birthday yesterday. <laughs> yeah so yeah I mean for me what we see in all of these pages which again I think that it was a little long at least for me as a reader we <laughs> see him sort of becoming more and more introverted out of necessity and maybe as a result he's developing some really interesting skills he's becoming a very specific kind of leader and he's becoming like very creative and even smarter than he already was yeah yeah so I think what's really interesting about that section um and I sort of agree that it's long but I think ultimately I was interested enough to keep reading is it really firmly establishes who the antagonist of this book is and Mm. the book it takes place in a world in which the humans are at war with an alien race but the alien race is never really the antagonist we don't really meet them until the very end of the book and even at that point they're not who is creating obstacles for Ender. It's really the adults and the teachers at the school who Ender is fighting against. Throughout the entire book, even at the very end, um, we sort of find out they've betrayed him in this huge way. And that is sort of the central protagonist-antagonist relationship of this book, is him and these teachers, the adults, the people who run the IF. Yeah, they're basically just, like, doing everything they can to... Like, fuck with him. Yeah, to fuck with him. (laughs) Oh, by all means. It's totally fine. Our tagline is, should she read? Um, No, I mean, they're fucking with him. I have a quote that I pulled out of one of those sections where the adults are talking to each other, and I don't know if it is Graf or Anderson, who I think is the other person that's involved Mm, in a lot of these exchanges, but he says, Ender Wiggin must believe that no matter what happens, no adult will ever, ever step in to help him in any way. He must believe to the core of his soul that he can only do what he and the other children work out for themselves if he does not believe that he will never reach the peak of his abilities and this comes about toward the end of his time in battle school he's really like moved his way up through the ranks very quickly he's like the youngest kid ever to become the commander of an army and as such he's become a target of a lot of other kids Mm -hmm. because they're seeing he's successful like he's never lost a battle not only has he never lost a battle but like his margins are like not even tight like he's just crushing it and that makes a lot of the older kids angry especially the older kids who were once his superiors as he was moving his way through so there's one boy in particular named i believe his name is pronounced bonso um yes they do like specify that they're like not bonzo it's bonzo because i of course thought it was bonzo but it's bonzo (laughs) um and he i believe was either ender's first or second commander when he got to battle school and he's extremely angry about (laughs) Ender's quick rise to the top. And as we referenced earlier in our conversation, there's a similar scenario, a similar confrontation to what happens early in the book with Stilson. And Ender's like trying to just put this to bed. Right. He just like (laughs) wants it to be over. And so he lashes out at Bonso. We find out that he actually killed him. But the teachers actually kind of saw all of this percolating because it's obvious that, like, there's unrest among the ranks. Uh, But rather than, like, trying to set things right and, like, maybe make Ender not quite so isolated, they're like, actually, no, this is the best way. Like, we don't want Ender to think that anybody's going to help him because it'll just be better if he thinks he's on his own. Yeah, so they end up essentially sacrificing this kid, Bonso, to the sort of altar of this war. And they're like, he, you know, if Ender kills him, that's an acceptable outcome for us if you know it'll help Ender become the person who's going to win this 
war for us. And I think that conflict is also very interesting because Ender sort of references it again when he's talking to his sister Valentine. And we get this concept that is continues actually throughout the series that I think is very interesting. And essentially Ender is saying the reason he's able to defeat his enemies is because he understands them so well. Mm-hmm. And the moment that he's able to understand them so well, he does that through empathy and through compassion. And so at that moment, he actually loves them. And that's the only way that he's able to defeat them. I think this is a really strange, really interesting concept that Orson Scott Card is introducing, where essentially you have this dichotomy between violence and compassion and love. And he's saying these two things actually can go together and that they're essentially the same thing. So I'm not really sure what I think about that. This idea is explored in some of his later books as well. And it's just like really weird way to look at this kind of thing. Well, it's especially strange given, and and I hate to continue to bring it up, but I just will remind listeners, like, this whole idea is especially strange given Orson Scott Card's sort of, like, hateful outlook on so many things. So the fact that, like, sort of the whole crux of this character is his love and compassion and, like, that's how he's able to, like, move through the world, although often the ends are really nasty. Like, his general outlook is one of love and acceptance and empathy. Like, it just, it is kind of crazy that that stands in such contrast to Orson Scott Card's approach? Well, I think it really does actually tie into sort of a a Christian outlook. And I'm not Christian, so I'm not going to speak to that, like, faith itself. But I think that is a sort of a central concept that, you know, you have to love your enemy and show them compassion. And that's not really what Ender ends up doing. He sort of has the compassion and he uses that to enact violence. But I think it does sort of tie into that idea that, you know, you can love your enemy in this way. We, we end up really understanding this shortly after the fight with Bonso. And I agree with you that this is a really interesting concept. So I think I'll just like say a little bit more about what happens next so we can really get into the conversation. Because after battle school, Ender is promoted to command school, which is like a huge deal. And not right. all kids get to go on to this point. And we're not going to be able to cover all the other things that are going on in the time we have together. Suffice it to say, listeners, that there's all this political stuff going on on the side. Ender gets to go back to Earth for a little bit. He sees his sister. He finds out that Peter and Valentine have been like covertly writing all of these political pieces and they've become like major thinkers. There's so much going on even on Earth that I would love to explore. But what's happening with Ender is that he, again, is like moving up through the ranks so quickly. They want him to train to become a commander. After his brief little sort of rest stop with his family, he gets to go back up into orbit and he goes to command school. And rather than sort of like these in-person battle simulations, he's using like exclusively like virtual kind of simulations. But he's under the direction of Mazer Rackham, who is this like decorated veteran who was the one who defeated the buggers the first time. And so I even had this moment when we find out that his like assigned companion is Mazer Rackham, where I was like, oh, that's so cool. You know, you can kind of, (laughs) that for me was a very cinematic moment where I was like, that must Mm -hmm. have been a cool reveal in the movie. I love that moment when there's like a character that you meet and then you find out they're like this famous like super like mythical almost person like I love that kind of thing yeah and I believe Ben Kingsley played Mazer Rackham in the movie and I was like yes I was like this is Ben Kingsley it's also mentioned earlier that he's like um half Maori from New Zealand and so in my mind I was also like if they ever do an Ender's Game remake Taika Waititi should play it Yeah, I mean, it would be amazing if a remake got made after all the shit that went down with it in 2013, but never say never, Katie. Dream big. You just never know. So he's he's up there at command school. He's learning from Mazer Rackham. Again, they're continuing to isolate him and just, like, essentially just, like, make him feel like he's 
two inches tall, breaking him down. He's really falling into a state of depression. But he starts to get to command an army of his friends in these virtual games. Like he realizes that the relationships that he built at battle school are circling back and he's actually working with these kids as he's commanding fleets virtually at the command school. But here's the thing, everyone. It's his final test. He finds out that all of these adults are in the room watching him, like, command this final battle virtually. And, like, he's going to find out what his fate is after this. Like, is he actually going to be the kid that goes on to be the commander of, like, the entire international fleet? Maybe. Who knows? He has to pass the final test. And over the course of the final test, he, like, sort of just decides that he's going to, like, throw all caution to the wind because he's so sick of the rules that he's had to adhere to through this whole time period and he decides to be reckless and he essentially like blows up the whole bugger planet yeah um and everybody's like great you passed that's so awesome congratulations but what we find out is that it wasn't a simulation at all and none of the battles that he was fighting were fake they were all real and so without knowing it he's now committed genocide um and killed this entire planet of buggers and to your point about sort of like the complicated nature of ender's combination of like love and empathy and violence um i pulled out one quote from graf that i thought was really interesting he says it after this major truth bomb has been dropped he says of course we tricked you into it that's the whole point it had to be a trick or you couldn't have done it it's the bind we were in we had to have a commander with so much empathy that he would think like the buggers understand them and anticipate them so much compassion that he could win the love of his underlings and work with them like a perfect machine as perfect as the buggers but somebody with that much compassion could never be the killer we needed could never go into battle willing to win at all costs if you knew you couldn't do it if you were the kind of person who would do it even if you knew you could never have understood the buggers well enough yeah so that really is really illustrates the point that ender's compassion is really what makes him an effective killer essentially it was interesting rereading this because even though it's a very huge point in the book when i was reading it as a kid i didn't fully clock that when they attack the buggers at their home world they're doing it without real provocation like the last time that the buggers attacked earth is 50 something years ago like they have not done anything since then and so the whole book we're sort of anticipating this next battle and all of these kids are training but really the buggers have done nothing since then to really provoke this attack and earth just decides to go attack them at their home and ender questions this a few times he's like what if we just leave them alone like what if they're not going to attack us again like why do we have to go out and fight them if you know they're not provoking me and that's really ender's whole philosophy is he's not going to hurt anyone unless someone's trying to hurt him and then in that case it's all over so i think it's interesting that the whole book is about war essentially and the idea of going out and fighting a war that you don't have to fight i think is really condemned in this book which i think is interesting i will say that twist ending blew my mind i was on a plane (laughs) when i read it and i luckily had nobody in the seat next to me because i was like oh my god I was like, is anybody else? Like, I, it was one of those moments where I was looking around, like, thinking, like, does anybody else know? Like, is anybody else reading this book? We have to talk about it. Um, it surprised me. And I had had a couple of people DM me when they saw that I was reading Ender's Game. And they had been like, wait till you see what the ending is. And just given, like, the way that the plot played out, I was like, I don't really, I, I can't understand what the twist is going to be. So this really was a great ending in terms of just, like, plot structure. It took me yeah. completely by surprise. It's, like, such a reversal. I think it, it's, like, built into the premise of the book. It's, like, Ender's game like he's playing all these games he's training and then at the end we find out like the last sort of bit 
has not been training at all. He's been actually fighting this war. And I think it's kind of the perfect reversal of the premise of the book. Yeah, and the moral implications of all of it are really interesting, as you mentioned. Like, it is a book about war. It's also a book about, like, what our responsibility in all of it is. I found an interesting essay in Salon, again, written in 2013, as the movie was coming out, that kind of addresses, like, this moral quandary. And the writer says, what matters to Card in Ender's game is that Ender has immense power and no responsibility. He's the mastery of a killer without ever choosing to kill. His remorse, when it comes, only does him credit since he cannot legitimately be faulted for something he didn't know he was doing. Yet his heart bleeds for the buggers. And she goes on to talk about how it's this instinct that so many of us want to have to like be a hero and a victim at the same time. And I do think that this book does a really interesting job of illustrating that in a world that's not real. So it kind of feels mm-hmm. like the stakes are low because it's so science fiction and so out there. So it doesn't feel like anything that we can actually like map onto like right real, yeah but that's really what it's about and it's about you know it's about what happens in war and interestingly this book is required reading for the marines or at least a lot what? of the marines yeah <laughs> according according to the internet it's been on the required reading list for incoming marines at various levels and it's required reading in a lot of other military organizations so i did not know that wild what's interesting too is in the sequels to this series it takes place because of the relativity situation it takes place like i think like a thousand years after this book oh wow so he and valentine have essentially been like scooting around the universe or like the galaxy or whatever and a thousand years have passed on earth for him it's like 20 maybe and we find out that in fact his legacy on earth and then in the colonies that they sort of form is actually he's condemned he ends up being this sort of horrible figure in history who's who did this genocide. I forget exactly what they call him, but he, they essentially like say like this was a genocide that Ender did, and so he's not actually a celebrated figure as it turns out. Hmm. So I think that's also interesting too that it's sort of referenced in the book that like the historians will eventually turn on Ender and decide that this was not actually a victory, but like a really horrible moment in human history. Um, And that does come true. Yeah, because at first everybody seems super excited about him. Like everybody wants him to fight for them and be part of their political arm. And he's sort of in demand and that's kind of why he stays away. The, The one other point that I'll make before we start to wrap up, because it was, I think, the most intriguing part of like the post genocide ending is that when Ender sort of flees the scene with Valentine and they actually end up going to help colonize the bugger's asteroid. He finds an egg, a bugger egg that he decides he's going to take responsibility for and sort of like figure out the best home for it and help to repopulate um, the galaxy with buggers. This was like a little too precious for me, but I get what he was trying to do. And especially knowing now that he's like written all these other books, I would assume that maybe that plays into the other books a bit. Um, It does. That's definitely still a plot point. I actually don't remember what ends up happening with that. I think he does eventually succeed, but like that's not actually what the books are about. He like does some other stuff, but I, I think I would disagree with you. I actually like the ending of it. And maybe it's just because, you know, I've read this book so many times and this is such a central part of the book that I remember. But I think it's also interesting that Orson Scott Card creates this alien race and they're really purposely so different. They're not humanoid at all. They're very different from us. Um, They don't even think like us. They're like totally alien to us. And he sort of, I 
think does that on purpose to be like, someone can be super different from you and you can still have compassion for them. You can still want to help them. Ultimately, of course, this is complicated by the fact that Ender destroyed their entire race. <laughs> but I think it's interesting that the, the human race that he creates is not likable. You know, it's not like, oh, so nice. It's like, you know, a Vulcan, like we can totally get along. Like it's like this completely alien creature. Mm-hmm. Um, so I thought that was interesting. And yeah, I mean, I think that also like the decision that Ender makes with Valentine to leave at the end of the book is really the only one he can make. It's like a very classic sort of, you can never return to where you came from after you've gone through this ordeal. It's like what happens at the end of Lord of the Rings where Frodo is like, can't go back to the Shire, don't fit in here anymore. It just doesn't work. So you sort of save this place that's very precious to you, but you can't return to it. So I think that's sort of a natural ending to like what Ender has done. On the whole, having read this book as many times as you have, (laughs) has coming back to it now as an adult made you love it all the more? Has it not held up for you? I know some of this is probably informed by what we now know about Orson Scott Card's politics. And obviously, if you feel like that changes your answer, feel free to share. But this is sort of our central SSR question. So excited to hear what you think. I think that's a really complicated question for this book in particular. I think I do still love the book. I think there are the things that I loved about it when I first read it are the things that I loved about it this time. And I think there are new things that I loved about it while reading it. But I also think there are things that I have really looked at a lot more critically, and we mentioned some of them, um, and the ways in which Orson Scott Card's politics do make it onto the page. I think I'm able to identify those things a lot better now. And I think those things did detract from the reading experience. Um, But I don't think this is a book that I can ever fully put down and say, like, this book is not influencing me anymore. This book is not something that comes to mind when I think about all the books that I've loved. Like, it really is such a formative work for me. And it's impossible, really, to just take it out of my sort of like mishmash of things that influenced me as a writer. Well, I'm really grateful that I finally was introduced to what this book is really about. As I said, it's sort of just been like very far out on my radar, but um, reading it was a great experience. I actually really liked the book on the whole, taking out some of the issues of representation and, you know, if we step back and look at the broader context of where the book comes from, I obviously have a lot of problems with that, but I enjoyed the book itself a lot more than I expected that I would. So that was a nice surprise, um, and I'm happy that I finally know what the deal is with Ender's Game, so thank you for choosing it and taking the time to read it. I'm sure that your life is crazy right now getting ready for the book. But before we jump off, I'd love to know what else you've been reading lately that you would recommend to our SSR listeners. Oh, yes. Okay. So I've read a lot of books in the last couple months. Um, I had like a month off of writing and editing. So I took that to like really get a lot of reading done. Um, So some books that I've loved, all of these I think are YA or some of them are YA. Um, The Merciful Crow, which is a fantasy series that came out, I believe, yesterday or two days ago. It's a fantasy book, and it's about this world in which there are these casts of people, and the protagonist is in the lowest caste. And their job, essentially, in this kingdom is to go into villages and, like, remove these plague victims so that the rest of the village doesn't get infected. And so her clan gets sort of caught up in this sort of plan by the prince of this kingdom 
to basically escape his evil stepmother, who is the queen, so that he can actually rule and not her. Hmm. So the Merciful Crow, Margaret Owen, excellent. I'm going on tour with her in the fall, so um, I'm super excited about that because I loved the book. Um, Another book that I read last month, which is actually a romance book, which I don't actually read a lot of romance books. It's called Red, White, and Royal Blue, and it's essentially about the son of the President of the United States and the Prince of England fall in love, and it's great. It's just, like, so enjoyable. Like, I sped through that book, and it's a pretty big book. I just bought it over the weekend, and I'm planning to take it on a trip. Um, Actually, like, probably right after this episode drops, listeners, like, I'll be reading it imminently. I feel like I've seen it everywhere, and I'm so psyched to finally read it. It definitely lives up to the hype, I think. Like, I enjoyed it so much. Another book that I read that comes out this fall is called The Grace Year by Kim... Liggett, I don't quite know how to pronounce her name, sorry. That is another sort of fantasy-ish, dystopian-ish book um, that's about this world in which all girls on their 16th birthday or just 16th year are like isolated in sort of the wilderness um, and they all have to like live together and then it sort of devolves into this really creepy like almost like psychological horror kind of a thing and it really I think is a very feminist work like very much so I really enjoyed that I read that in like a day Um, and I think I'm missing something that I read very recently on a plane. I just got into the series and most YA readers know it and love it already. Um, and I was planning to wait, and wait until the third book came out. Um, but I started Holly Black's Cruel Prince, which is actually the first of her books I've ever read, which I know, mistake by me. But I sped through that book, immediately got the second one. Like, they're just so good. So I definitely recommend those. Well, I will include links to all of your recommendations in the show notes for this episode. Thank you for sharing all of those <laughs> so many good ones <laughs> no you got to take advantage of that time I'll, I'll include links to all of those I'll also include a link to Ender's Game for those who want to reread it or if you're like me read it for the first time and I will also of course include a link to Katie's debut novel which is coming out in just a few weeks as you're listening to this it is called There Will Come a Darkness pre-order it if it's before early September if it's after early September not sure what you're waiting for you should totally go check it out (laughs) Katie I've absolutely loved talking with you thank you so much for taking the time to read the book again to talk about it with me I know it was probably an extra complicated conversation for you with a book that's so close (laughs) to your heart so I appreciate you not being afraid to dive in oh of course I was so excited to talk about this book I think like I really love having those sort of complicated difficult conversations so this was really fun and thank you so much for inviting me well you're in the right place for the complicated difficult conversations. It was really nice to chatting with you. Have a good day. You too. Bye. Thanks so much for listening to the SSR podcast. Check out our website at www.ssrpodcast.com for show notes and other information. And be sure to connect with us on social media for updates on upcoming episodes, behind the scenes inside scoop, and some good old fashioned book talk. Find us at SSR Pod on Instagram and Twitter and search SSR Podcast on Facebook to join the group. To reach out directly, you can send me an email at hellossrpod at gmail.com. If you're loving the show, it would mean so much if you could subscribe, leave a five-star review, and share your thoughts with a comment. And don't forget to tell your friends, too. In the meantime, happy reading. I'll see you next time on the SSR Podcast. <laughs>